0: And it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm your host, Robert Polly. I don't know how many of you watched the Golden Globes last week, but if you did, you might have caught this moment from Meryl Streep. She was getting her Best Actress Award for playing Julia Child in Julie and Julia.
1: I come to Golden Globes weekend, and I am really honestly conflicted how to have my happy movie self in the face of... Everything that I'm aware of in the real world. And I want to say that that's when I have my mother's voice coming to me saying, Partners in Health, shoot some money to Partners in Health, put the dress on, put on a smile.
0: Meryl never did explain what she meant by that, so allow me. Partners in Health is a medical relief organization that's long been one of the most important health care providers in Haiti. And after the earthquake, it got even more important. Whereas most medical facilities in the capital city of Port-au-Prince were wrecked in the quake, Partners in Health's hospitals and clinics are located outside the city and are still standing. In the week and a half since the earthquake struck, they've been providing critical care to many of the victims. Hence Meryl Streep's plea. Partners in Health has been bringing world-class medical care to poor nations like Haiti for a little over 20 years now. And it's been getting a lot of attention in recent years due to a best-selling book that came out in 2003 called Mountains Beyond Mountains by Tracy Kidder. It's the story of a remarkable organization and the remarkable man who founded it, Dr. Paul Farmer. And as it happens, I talked to Tracy Kidder about the book when it had come out and when I was in my radio infancy. I pulled that interview out of cold storage today, and I'm going to play it again. Though some details are dated, much of it is still relevant not only to Haiti and other impoverished regions, but also to healthcare in the U.S. And just to set up the interview a little bit, in my original introduction, I think I referred to Paul Farmer as a medical hero or something like that, which uh, explains this first question I asked Tracy Kidder. That introduction I just gave points out one of the problems when describing Paul Farmer, which is the almost impossibility of not lapsing into fulsome praise, yeah. so that it
2: comes to seem almost a, a creature of fiction or, or media hype. I think that's true, and it's one of the reasons I wrote this book in the first person. Uh, my last, I think, four books I I didn't, um, and even the soul of a new machine, which is written in the first person, is written in a rather re- reserved one. I felt that the um, the reader would need a, a, a someone a lot less virtuous than Farmer to serve as an everyman, um, and to you know to testify in effect that this guy was for real. He's such an improbable character. And also to acknowledge the discomfort that you're bound to feel in the presence of a person like this. I mean, he doesn't keep anything for himself. Did you search
0: for flaws then to make him human? No, I didn't have
2: to search. They were there. <laughs> <laughs> it could be difficult to be with, although I must say, you know, one expects a sort of dour or or, or at least a thoroughly self-righteous person um, doing this, to be doing this kind of work, and he's none of neither of those. He's, he's really a lot of fun to be around. He's very funny. Uh, he... Uh, and he, and he likes having a good time. I enjoyed traveling with him. It was like an adventure for me. Let's start by going back to
0: his accomplishments in Haiti, first of all. He, he started visiting the country in 1983 when he was just out of college and about to enter medical school.
2: Yeah, he was a year away from medical school. Well, He was also going to go, go and get his Ph.D. in anthropology at, medical anthropology at Harvard. He had uh, conceived an interest in, in Haiti, I think, when he was at Duke. As an undergraduate, he'd gotten interested in migrant farm workers, and um, many of them were Haitian. And I think he went there um, initially thinking he'd be be doing anthropology mostly. But the suffering that he saw there, I think he felt ultimately called for more than anthropology, more than merely study. Not that anthropology hasn't helped him, in his work there, but when he finally came upon this squatter settlement in Kaj, where the people had really been robbed of their land um, and everyone seemed to be sick, I, I think he felt you know he 'd found the place where he ought to where he ought to work and I think that I think that back then i mean he was simply responding to the suffering that he saw there, but you know if he'd, if he 'd wanted to prove a point ultimately about what 's possible and reasonable in public health and medicine, he really couldn 't have chosen a better a better place because there was no place more starved of the necessities than, than than the place that he found, this little squatter settlement of Kosh. I mean, there, there were there were no trees left. The the soil, as the peasants say, didn't give. The water was, of course, not potable. Children were dying like smelt of diarrheal diseases. Um, and you know, there's no infrastructure, no electricity, even though this was the their land was taken for a hydroelectric dam. And, you know, and the roads are horrendous. So, really, I think that the fact of the matter is that if you can do a good thing in a setting like that, you can do it anywhere.
0: So, let's cut to the present day where he has a clinic established, a clinic uh, Bon Saveur, what has he accomplished?
2: Well, it's a lot more than a clinic. It, at the center of this, in college, there is a, a real medical complex. There's a hospital with a children's pavilion. I think there's, a, there's an optometry clinic. There's a dental clinic. There are two laboratories. There are two operating rooms. There's a special <laughs> wing for tuberculosis. Uh, you know, it goes on and on. But it's really just at the center of a very large and growing uh, healthcare system, the secret of which is commu- are, are something called community health workers. And these are simply, for the most part, peasants, Many of them have former patients themselves who are well trained and who deliver medications to patients in outlying areas um, and and other services as well and it 's worked extraordinarily well. He devised that system back um, back in, uh, in one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight um, for treating tuberculosis, and they have not lost a single patient from their what 's called their catchment area uh, since since one thousand nine hundred and eighty eight to to an ordinary case of tuberculosis. The uh, whole system is now being expanded to cover about an eighth of haiti they 're in the process of doing it i haven 't been there very recently, but i 'm told it 's going pretty well it 's of course nightmarishly difficult they 're going into to, to places that have you know a, a sort of rudimentary clinics or little private hospitals that are empty because they charge fees that no one can pay at partners in health 's facility there are all the care is first-rate, and all of it is free, essentially. In fact, um, no less an authority than Howard
0: Hyatt, a, a, a respected expert on public health, said that the um, clinic and hospital there deliver care with a, quote, skill and personal attention comparable to the best American hospitals.
2: I think that's, I think that's true from what I've
0: seen. And the cost, apparently, per patient, per cure... For tuberculosis? For tuberculosis. It's
2: astonishing. It's less than $200. Uh,
0: compared to thousands in the United States?
2: I, we hospitalize we, uh, TB patients in the United States. Of course, they're relatively scarce here, but uh, I think the average that we spend is something on the order of $20,000. Uh, in, in Haiti, uh, Partners in Health doesn't hospitalize t- or, pa- TB patients who have uncomplicated cases. They do hospitalize others. Um, he can. He's treating AIDS now. With in, in part with a grant from the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, TB, and Malaria. And um, they're having really great success. They, they're able now to do it, he estimates, for about $700 per patient per year, which is staggering. When I was first hanging out with him, the drugs alone were costing him between five and $8,000 a year per patient.
0: Among other things, he and his, his team members have actually driven down the price of the drugs.
2: That's quite a tale, actually. Yeah. I mean, by, really by accident, they came across a, um, an epidemic of multidrug-resistant TB in Peru in a shanty town outside of Lima. And they felt duty-bound to try to tackle this, even though uh, you know, the international health authorities had deemed this uh, in, in cost-ineffective, not cost-effective, to do in a, in a poor setting. United States had spent something on the order of billion a billion dollars staunching a TB epidemic in New York City that was heavily laced with drug resistance. But this was Lima, so it was a different story. Um, and what they showed, what Farmer and his colleagues showed, was that that this cost-effectiveness analysis was based on nothing, really, just on air. No one had tried to to treat the disease effectively in a place like this this shanty town. Uh, and they did it with a- astonishing effectiveness they I think they their cure rates approach eighty five percent, which is better than uh is done in Denver and the best treatment facility for this disease in the world and uh you know people were saying it was too costly well, it was very, very costly. Partners in health spent most of its endowment treating it but the the main the main source of the costliness was the price of the drugs. The drugs were all off patent. no one had even bothered to look into that. So Jim Kim, what a, partner, a farmer's colleague, really his, his sort of... Lieutenant? I don't know if he's his lieutenant or his equal or what he is, but they're, uh, anyway, Jim uh, did most of this work, along with, with a lot of help from people like Doctors Without Borders and some generic drug companies and others. And uh, in the, uh, the, the, by now, I think, I think that the price of those second-line tuberculosis drugs uh, has been driven down by about 95%. Which has
0: enabled people to uh, undertake other treatment programs elsewhere in the world. Exactly. Yeah. Um,
2: and, and, and it's also, for me, you know, stands as a sort of paradigm, which is, which is to say, when you hear terms like or cost-effective or not cost-effective, you should inquire a little bit. When you hear terms like not sustainable, when you hear terms like in, you know, appropriate technology, watch out so as 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 you 're explaining um you
0: know the result of his work is very cost effective and yet he ignores the dictates the the, the received wisdom on on cost in fact, sometimes he spares no expense for an
2: individual patient i mean he 's willing to do whatever it takes he is willing to do whatever it takes and in an emergency situation, sometimes you know you you simply have to bite the bullet. he is very frugal i i, I wouldn 't want anyone to Get the idea that he isn't the whole organization is extremely right. frugal i I've never seen an organization like this. they pay f- they spend five percent of donations uh administering themselves, and the rest goes in direct services to patients. but he's anything
0: but a bean counter i i mean he he uh he really works from the heart he does things like trekking hours and hours into the Haitian countryside just to meet a couple of patients and see how they're doing um This is a guy who about whom you said, and I think this is really uh, quite a telling quote from your book. How does one person with great talents come to exert a force in the world? I think in Farmer's case, the answer lies somewhere in the apparent craziness, the sheer impracticality of half of everything he does. Yeah. Some
2: examples. Well, uh, I think that the the one you just cited, we took this 11-hour hike to see two families of patients. And I know that a lot of Farmer's friends and I suppose his critics would say this is a tremendous waste for a man who is made himself into uh, such an important personage in international health and medical anthropology and so on and so forth. They feel that he should be at meetings you know, uh, and, and scheming about the um, health of, of vast populations. Farmer, uh, I think, needs to make those hikes, just personally, because I think that, I think that all of his strength and all of his energy, which, seems, which is considerable, uh, stems from doctoring. That's what he really loves to do. And he told me that once. That's when I feel most alive, when I'm helping people. And he's a marvelous doctor. It's and it's wonderful to feel yourself in his hands, as I did a few times, uh, in this uh, in my journeys with him, my adventures, as <laughs> I say. It's enough to make one get hypochondriacal just to experience. It. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, I am pretty hypochondriacal. <laughs> I have to admit. But just to give you, uh, just to digress for a moment, there was a there was a moment we'd had a sort of quarrel in, in Cuba and. Um, Anyway, we have gotten on the plane finally to Paris. It was the middle of the night. I was miserable. I had diarrhea. And I wasn't going to tell him right up until I did. And uh, he woke right up in his airplane seat, and he looked at me, and he said, very seriously, from now on, I want a full report on all of your bowel movements. And I felt <laughs> immensely relieved, you know, right then and there. But to, but to go on with this this idea of, you know, why would a guy who has become, you know, who has some clout now in the world and, and whose time is so, seems so very valuable, you know, sp- spend 11 hours on a hike to visit two families. I think the answer in, in part is that, is it, as I said, is it, he needs to do it. It's what gives him, renews his passion and authority and allows him to travel you know, hundreds of thousands of miles on airplanes every year to, and scheme about the health of populations. But I think he'd also argue that you know, if you say that, that uh, two families aren't worth an 11-hour hike, you're sort of saying that some lives matter more than others. And I think he thinks that that's the root of all the trouble in the world, the idea that some lives matter more than others. And there's a further thing, too, which is how do we really define public health and populations? Uh, I, uh, you know, I'm aware of, of epidemiologists who will say, well, the problem with a person like Farmer is that he's a clinician. He's just a clinician, and he cares only about the patients who are in front of him, whereas we care about something much more important, which is public health. I, I put this to him one night on a street in Moscow, and he said, well, I care about public health, too. But what's the public? Is it a country? Is it a city? Is it a village? is it a, Is it a family? Who are they to say what the public is and I, I think that the partners in health approach, which has always been centered on the individual patient and and you know going from the particular to the more general uh, is, a, is one that, that first of all is very attractive to me because I can imagine myself an individual patient and secondly, uh, as Jim Kim put it once to me if you if you do that you can 't get sloppy. Um, the whole notion that that, that that somehow uh, a human population can, can be can be treated the one you know one cookie cutter approach is is pretty much wrong you know medically it's not that you don't on the other hand I mean Farmer would be the last person for instance to say that we shouldn't have this um, wonderful TB general TB program that the World Health Organization developed called DOTS by the way right. sorry for the acronym um, that should underlie any TB control program. But you have to add, you have to bring the flexibility into it, and I think the flexibility comes from an attention to individual patients. If you don't bring that flexibility and you start to get sloppy and you start to ignore problems like multidrug resistant TB, describe Farmer as a doctor. Describe how he relates to his patients. Well, first thing he does is um, <laughs> virtually climbs in bed with them. <laughs> you know, he puts his hands on them pretty quickly. I, I think there might be situations where he wouldn't. He he seems. Um, And just watching him with patients, he seems incredibly tender with them. And uh, he has a rule that he likes to to, to tell his medical students at Harvard, you know, which is that to be a good physician, all you have to do is um, not let your uh, patients know that you have problems, too, and never seem to be in a hurry. Of course, there's a downside to that, which is that a lot of the patients end up waiting to see him, uh, you know, waiting all day to see him in Haiti. uh, Although there are plenty of other doctors there now, but the other downside, I think, is for his young students at, at the Brigham uh, and Women's Hospital in Boston. I've heard them say, well, you know, it's awesome to work with him, but don't expect to get home before 2 a.m. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. But I think that notion that the patient is the most important person in the room is very interesting. The first time I saw him with a patient, I tell this story in my book. I was a guy with AIDS uh, who was a uh, drug addict and an alcoholic. And um, this the is, kind of person we would. This is we Joe. Might, yeah, I call yeah, him Joe. Yeah. That we might, you know, write off, dismiss. Well, there were a lot of people in the room. You know, there were, I was there, and um, there were a lot of uh, high, you know, Cracker Jack medical students, residents, and so on and so forth. But it was perfectly clear to me, at, very quickly, that the most imp- important person in that room was this guy at the bottom of the heap, because he was farmer's patient. By virtue, partly, of being bottom the, at the bottom of the heap, but also because he was his patient. And it, and just for a moment, I, I sort of saw this, this inversion. It just made me realize how it, Get some sense of how life you must usually look to Joe because he 's probably almost always the least important person in the room, and I realized that i wasn 't i mean you know i 'm willing to accept that as a as a writer following someone around but um anyway it, it he 's so funny with them too i mean he he gets all over them and he has a way of extracting information from them, I think. This, um, I think a lot of people have noticed this about him. He has a way of making you feel, whether you're his patient or not, but especially I think if you're his patient, that you are the most important person in the world to him right then.
0: As you describe, he actually weeps when his patients die. He remembers them for years hence. He That's, must. He must know literally thousands of people personally. At this that is point.
2: one of the most interesting things to me. He doesn't weep all that much, although sometimes I think he needs hormone replacement therapy. At least <laughs> I've said that, but t- teasing him. But no, he really doesn't. He's not a big crybaby. But he does get upset, and particularly the deaths of children. I mean, why wouldn't one be upset when a child dies of tetanus or measles or something like that? But the point you you raise about about remembering patients is one of, is the most astonishing thing of all to me. I mean his guy is clearly a very very bright and talented person. <clears throat> his friend Ethan Kanan, the writer, thinks that he has an eidetic memory, a photographic memory i I think he has a very powerful memory, but I think that the way it works is is, is i think it's effective the uh, I, I this dawned on me I think it was partly one of his students who had said this but it dawned on me one day, you know, when I, I bought this huge tome called Mandel's Principles and Practices of Infectious Disease, and I would, from time to time, try stuff out on him to see. And yeah, he knew everything, and he knew more than was in the book about really exotic diseases, such as tropical sprue, for instance, a truly nasty disease, but pretty uh, pretty exotic, I mean, pretty uh, rare. <laughs> not rare, Rarely heard of, anyway. He, I think one of his students put it to him once, you know, saying, how do you remember all this? It's like, you know, your knowledge seems to be encyclopedic. And really, uh, I think it's all hung. His memory palace hangs from individual patients. He claimed, he told me, "Well, don't be silly. I don't remember every single patient's name." But the fact is that he does remember an enormous number of them, including a lot of their lab data. I, I remember one of the first times I met him in 1994. Shortly after I'd first met him, we went to dinner in Boston. He had just come from a patient who had died, and he was pretty—he was feeling pretty bad about it. I reminded him this of this. I think it was eight years later. And he and he dis- he said, oh, yeah, that poor guy. And he described the stuffed animal that this patient had had in his room. And I realized, you know, all the symptoms, all the pathophysiology, all the, the remedies, and so on, are hanging from these memories of these individual people, many of whom we cured and some of whom we didn't. And And this brings up a
0: question that really hangs over the book as a whole, which is, are farmer's achievements sort of a one-off phenomenon that depend on this extraordinarily gifted individual or can they be replicated by others can they be spread through the world
2: is this reproducible
0: is it reproducible
2: well i hope so um and i i expect he hopes so too um, certainly the people around him i mean farmer's done none of this alone he was the inspiration for much of it most of it not all of it um, and maybe if I just gave you a quick sense of some of the people he's had around them, uh, Tom White, for instance, a, a Boston tycoon, a man with the, who owned the largest uh, construction firm, heavy construction firm in Boston. He met Paul when Paul was young, and uh, he, Tom and White had been giving money away already for years, and he basically uh, he helped found Partners in Health, and he basically financed most of its operations for quite some time. Um, he's given away millions and millions of dollars. He's a guy who told me that he wanted to die without a nickel. There's also Jim Kim, whom I mentioned earlier, who's Korean-American, a Brigham doc, a, a hotshot doc. But he has... And, and his strength is really in... He's an inspirational character and an idea man. And he's got a million of them a minute. Um, some people criticize him for not following through on projects. That's unfair because fo- he followed... He did a lot of the scut work for Partners in Health when it was tiny for years and years. Jim is um, the guy who started the whole Peru project and and did all that work on drugs he, What he loves though is is the stuff that farmer doesn 't particularly like, which is all these international health meetings and in fact, Jim is now serving as the senior advisor to the new director general of the World Health Organization, which is interesting given that that for a time their partners in health was really at war with the world mm-hmm. health Organization um, and then finally there's a, these are the sort of core group that that started all there 's a woman named Ophelia Dahl. Uh, whose father's the writer Ronald Dahl, mother's uh, the actress Patricia Neal. She went to Haiti when she was 18, and uh, to do sort of vague intention of doing good works. And she ran into Paul, who was 23. That was in 1983 when he first went there, and he fell in love with her, and she fell in love with him. It, it didn't. It's a kind of lovely story in my book, but it didn't, you know, work out. It didn't turn. It didn't end in marriage, but uh, they remained tremendous friends, and Ophelia still is really the manager of Partners in Health and the, uh, of this growing enterprise that now has, you know, a thousand, uh, over 1,000 people working for it. So, you know, it isn't as though he did this all by himself. I don't think it would have happened without him. Um, I think that if he died tomorrow, it would be a catastrophe. But but there are enormous number of young people who have been inspired by him and Jim, particularly by him and Jim, um, who are coming along now? I mean, they've finished their residencies. They've, there are lots of doctors, including uh, one wonderful middle-aged one who uh, I, I don't write about because she came on just around the time when I was finishing my research. Who is traveling as much, or maybe more, than Paul is now. And a lot of these people are are willing to take salaries far smaller than they could have could earn other, elsewhere, or or even to raise their own salaries through grants and to work in places like the slums of Lima or. The uh, central plateau of Haiti, which is a very difficult place to work. You know, there ain't no Cineplex there, and uh, you know there are only two meals a day. They're right. nutritious, but let me, let me go on just for a moment yeah. about this question of of reproducibility because I think it's yeah. really important. Okay, I don't think that anyone, any individual that I know would could do what or would would be able to would be able or willing more maybe more important to try and do what farmer does himself. He doesn't sleep much. He doesn't keep anything for himself and i I think it would be unrealistic to expect uh, lots of Paul farmers to to arise, but you know to steal a metaphor, I mean if the mountains are are a little smaller uh, th- this stuff doesn 't look quite so daunting anymore i mean and I think that when you have a a movement which perhaps is something that is growing here for you know to, for treating AIDS and other diseases throughout the world, you know the first people who stick their head in there you know often do have the hardest time but um you know, i think it's reasonable to, to to ask if one small group of extraordinary individuals could do as much as they have with not an enormous amount of resources, then you know, with more resources and more people um and more political will from the from the wealthy countries of the world, then God only knows what they could do. You
0: know? Well he has altered the way some world health um policymakers are now treating big problems. I mean it's now considered something less than impossible to treat AIDS in poor countries, whereas before it was simply help them die and give them condoms. Now Mm. they're actually, uh, thanks to Farmer in part, they're actually using some of these advanced antiretroviral drugs to treat poor people with uh, AIDS.
2: He's only a part of, just to give you the history on this, I think that as recently as a couple of years ago there was a great debate about this, whether it was possible or advisable to try to treat AIDS uh, in in desperately impoverished places in Africa, basically, or in Haiti, um, and the arguments were sometimes kind of silly. You know, there was there was one uh, official who said that Africans lacked the requisite sense of time; they didn't have wristwatches or something like that. It's really silly. I think what F- farmers view was uh, was that that uh, you couldn't have prevention without treatment. And there are a lot of reasons for that, and we we could go into those. But he was hardly alone in this. I think the most, by far, the most significant organization in arguing for uh, AIDS treatment was ACT UP, which is really quite uh, wonderful. I mean that uh, that this American, I think it was an American-founded group, um, should have taken an interest in people in Africa. I think is really quite kind of wonderful. And I mean they they really are the ones who moved. Who kept kept hammering and kept hammering? Farmers, what farmers' contribution was? What partners in health's contribution was? Once again, this excellent, relatively small project. They started treating AIDS. Uh, I think they were the first people. Really, I, you know, it's hard to prove that there wasn't anything else, but they were the first people treating AIDS in a rural, desperately poor country, doing it for free and doing it, uh, you know, in, in, in a first-rate, um, uh, first-rate and effective manner combining it, of course, with a, with, with a comprehensive prevention program. And I think that, you know, when Farmer wrote about their little program, I think at the time when he wrote about it in an article for The Lancet, the British Medical Journal, I think they were only treating, I think it was 125 patients. My, my memory grows furtive, but uh, something like that. Very small on the scale, of, you know, on a disease that now has 40 to 60 million infected. Um, and yet when that thing was published, I, I saw the emails. They just streamed in from ministries of health all over the world from all, all sorts of places. And, and one email, one interesting set of emails came from former students of his who had been hired by a consulting firm, to, which, which had been hired in turn by an African country to start doing antiretroviral treatment there, asking him how to do it. And, and and this is this is quite a telling story i think about partners in health and farmer one uh younger member of the, their team said to farmer we, you know paul we they're being paid for this work we should we should get some money to, for you know helping the the consultants and he said absolutely not this this information is not for sale and i i mean i, I really admire that it's it you 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 know they they always know where to draw the line right. it shouldn't be for sale right right
0: One of the the most agonizing um, situations that confront workers in humanitarian fields is the the way their life is divided between these two worlds. The one of the haves that they normally inhabit or at least come from, uh, like the United States. And then this world of bare subsistence that they visit from time to time or maybe spend long periods in helping people. And it must be awfully hard psychologically to deal with that. Farmer's own life has this great divide, which he crosses sometimes in a single weekend. Mm-hmm. You describe how, you know, his uh, he has his job as a professor at Harvard Medical School and goes to maybe the best medical center in the world, but he returns to actually live in the central plateau of Haiti, this absolute destitute region. Um, how do these people, you've, you've talked to a lot of them, how do they deal with that? You know, the guilt that must come with that, the... The, the kinds of conflicts, the cognitive
2: dissonance of it all. Well, I, I know that in his case it was very hard at first when he was young. And he used to get furious. He'd get to the Miami airport and he'd overhear people talking about going on diets. You They'd know, have come from Haiti where everyone he knew seemed to be malnourished. And it would make him furious. And he said that at some point he simply said to himself, I can do a good job treating my patients without getting angry. Uh, you know not that he doesn 't not that there isn 't anger just simmering under the surface with him almost all the time, uh, which is one of the things that makes him sometimes a little prickly at least to, to the likes of me, although you know he doesn 't usually take it out on, on on the likes of me once only once in a while i' felt he um, I, you know i don 't really know the answer I only know that it is a real problem, and um, what, the way I felt myself every time we returned from Haiti. Uh, and got on an, an American airplane, and suddenly we had a cocktail. Sometimes we'd get bumped up to first class because Farmer, every 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 steward, every, every flight attendant knows him really well, and he often doctors people on those trips, so when they can bump him into first class, sometimes they do. And that was even better. And I remember him saying to me, he said very sadly one day, well, it's nice to be back in the first world again, as, as always. But he said it very sadly. Um, you know, and I think what bothers him is the thought that all of these Haitian patients of his will probably never get to fly in an airplane. Yeah. it's something very striking. I always think of that, that Port-au-Prince airport as uh, and uh, as a seam in the world. You know. Um,
0: yeah, and you have a story in the um, in the book that I think illustrates that chasm. Probably best of all, it's the story of John, a young boy who's stricken with a rare form of cancer, a mm-hmm. young Haitian boy from the area in the central plateau, where a farmer does his work. Could you tell me that story, Sure. in brief
2: yes, uh, farmer uh, far, <laughs> in brief as, <laughs> as briefly as possible. Uh, you know he, his dream of bringing Boston medicine to college seems impossible, and uh, at least at the moment, although you know it seems more and more possible every day, but uh, at the time of this story, which is a year or so ago, I guess geez. anyway, um, they had to with a case like this, they had to either let the boy die, probably or bring him to Boston and some partners in health people. Uh, um, female doctor actually just coaxed and cajoled and begged and so on until finally mass general said yeah well it's a very rare form of cancer we should take it and we will give him free care so I went over with this uh, uh, female doc, p i h doctor and another one and we tried to it seemed like a straightforward thing we'll take this boy back to Boston well when they got there it was clear that they couldn't take him on a commercial plane he was he was a lot sicker than when they had last left him it takes so long to get people out of Haiti. And eventually, what they had to do was to hire a medevac flight. It cost a little less than twenty thousand dollars. Got him back to Boston, uh, and then all the diagnostic tests that they couldn't do in 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 Kansh, in Haiti uh, were done. And it turned out that the cancer had metastasized into his vertebrae, and he was. And so, all there was to do then was to get his mother over there and give him palliative care, and he died. And it was a sort of grievous. And in the, my dark, in the my darkest moments of of wat- watching this extraction and and of just thinking about this, I wondered if you know this was uh, this had more to do with partners and health doctors than with the with the patient with showing their capacity for heroics and so on. And then I, but I caught myself and I said, well, wait a minute. If this had been my son, this is what I would have wanted. If it had been me, this is what I would have wanted. You know, this is really kind of unreasonable, and yet. I did run into a young, fairly new pih who said, gee, I just think how much money we could have, what we could have done with that $20,000, what other things we could have done. And so I said to myself, this is a question I have to put to Farmer. And uh, I waited until we went back to Haiti, to the other side of the great epidemiological divide. And uh, on this long, long hike we took to see two patients. My book is kind of framed by two hikes. Not not quite, but pretty much. uh, on that hike, I almost died of um, dehydration. By the way, good thing farmer was with me. <laughs> um, I, I put the question to him, "Why this boy and not another?" And his answer was uh, to me one of the most powerful things um, I'd, uh, he'd ever said to me. Among very powerful and, and interesting things, and I don't know that I can approximate it here. It, it's it's one of those one of those monologues was a, uh, sort of a dialogue that that's its own best exegesis, but it's potent. Mm. And, and sad. I mean, the whole thing was... Sometimes it, you don't save every patient.
0: It seems like everybody in the healthcare w- world must face that decision between sort of economic pragmatism, uh, triage, where you select out the most treatable patients and let the others mm-hmm. fend for themselves. On the other hand, you know, the heart says... I want to. I want to save this one person, and and it seems to me that that farmer and partners in health have somehow embraced both those ideals in a way. I mean, they are cost effective, and yet they are um, completely emotionally attached, and 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 do these uh, amazing feats for for individuals as well. It's it's quite an interesting solution
2: to that. I think it. I think. I think you've said it perfectly. I. You know. I. I they, they're not nuts. They are not crazy. There are instances where. I mean. This this case was, if this little boy could have been treated in Haiti, they would have treated him in Haiti. If they hadn't been able to obtain free care from the Mass General Hospital, I don't know what they would have done. But the fact that they had free care at the other end made made the you know paying for the medevac flight, which was the last resort, uh, seem sensible at the time because the boy might have had you know a sixty to seventy percent chance of survival. But. Um, It turned out that he didn't, and you can't always judge it by the outcome. Now, I'm guessing that that Paul Farmer is
0: not a guy who courts celebrity and and maybe wasn't all that warm to the idea of having an author tail him around for several years and write a book about him. You're guessing right.
2: (laughs) How did you persuade him to go along with this? I mean, you spent how long with him? I spent one solid month with him at first, and I spent weeks with him at other times. But it wasn't a long, uninterrupted year or, or something like that. I doubt I could have done it. I doubt he would have stood for it, and I'm not sure I could have done it physically. You know, it was, it was a grueling um, travel. And uh, I don't travel all that well anymore, but I did spend a long time with him. Initially, I, I think when I first came to him, I'd met him in 1994, and I didn't really pursue him again till 2000. Um, in part because I knew after having met him and spent just a little time with him that he was going to disturb my peace of mind. I think that now that that's why I waited to pursue him. But when I did put it to him, um, I think that uh, I have this from his colleagues sort of vaguely, some of them, that they, they said he, that he was reluctant, but that they said, look, this is something you really need to do to bring attention to, the, to our organization and to these issues particularly. So he let me travel with him for a month. I did a profile of him for the New Yorker. And then I said, you know, I'd like to write a book. Obviously, I needed access. And uh it took him some months before he decided that it would be all right to do it. But I really do I I don't think he's self-aggrandizing. I think he I think it kind of horrifies him when he gets uh, singled out.
0: Well, it's interesting. You you make it clear that he's very um canny about the potential impact of a profile like this that you're writing of him on several occasions in the book, he sort of brings these matters up with you. At one point, he says, I think um, very wisely, you could render generosity into pathology, commitment into obsession. And um, that's a reasonable fear, isn't it? When we look at a person who accomplishes as much as he does so selflessly, you start to look into the biography to find what sin they're expiating or what uh, Mm -hmm. damage was done to them in childhood. and You probe a little bit, but I I don't think...
2: uh well, it wasn't too much to find, uh, you know. I did probe uh, as much as I as much as I could. Um, I, you know, I didn't want to depict him as as uh, some papier-mâché figure. I, I wanted him to be real, live, warm, living, breathing human being who isn't who isn't perfect. That uh, that those remarks that you just quoted um, they came at a really odd time, and they they felt like they were delivered at, at me with some heat. I was a bit upset. Uh, well, I was pissed, frankly, and, uh, because I felt like I was being accused of having done those things before I'd written anything, you know. And I'd, I didn't quite know what was going on, but it, was, it, it got to me. Uh, he has said since he's read the book that he's surprised that I had that reaction. Uh, but <clears throat> I think I'd, have it, I'd still have that reaction. <laughs> what has been his reaction to the book? He told me uh, that I showed it to him when it when it was going out to other people, and I wanted him to be able to form his own opinion before uh, he was told what he ought to think. Um, not that that usually matters much to him, but uh, he told me that he was sort of shocked at first that it was so personal. He seems to he said at least on on the radio the other day that he thought it was a beautifully written book. I, I probably shouldn't say that. Although it's the, I do think it's the best thing I've written. I worked really hard on it. I, I don't know. I think he has mixed feelings. I think he feels ambivalent about it. He, I must say, you know, uh, he never he never tried to make me change anything. All he did w- when he saw the book was to change to fix errors of fact. And you know, I'm I don't feel that you can allow uh, the person you're writing about to control what you say about them. Uh, in in great detail. I mean, you do sometimes make deals to get access initially, but um, I was very grateful for
0: that. Yeah. Did you hear him when he was recently interviewed on the NPR program, Fresh Air? Yes, I did. And I, I caught him saying this at one point about a quote in the book. He said, The way that author of that book works is that he just hangs around and hangs around until you tell him anything he wants to hear. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
2: (laughs) this is your method, isn't it? Well, it is. I'm not sure it's... I hope it's not I mean hang- what I want to hear. I mean the hanging around <laughs> part, not no, the so hanging want to around hear. Part. well, you know, he does answer y- you do hope that oh, ultimately people will tell you what they're what they're
0: thinking. Of. Right, right. Now, now farmers work is so important and the merit so undeniable that sometimes conventions like journalistic objectivity seem almost trivial. Like uh, I'll confess right here and now that as an interviewer, I've completely let go of my detached fact-finder role i'm I'm truly impressed with this man and what he does, and I'm on his side. I wondered if you had a little bit of a battle in yourself between that traditional role of of the disinterested reporter and an out
2: and out believer well, sure, I mean, I think that always happens, but th- one of the things to remember is that you wouldn't have that reaction to it if you didn't trust me um and i you know and I think part of earning the reader's trust is is in the writing itself it's not enough to simply to say this happened, this is true. I think you have to make the truth, what's true, believable, um, <clears throat> which goes back to things like point of view and voice and you know tone, which all affect each other. Um, and I and I, I felt like <clears throat> I really had to understand, and I had to understand, you know, with wherever, wherever the chips, <laughs> I had to had to see where wherever they fell here, so that it would be real. I mean, I would do him a terrible disservice. If I wrote a book, in, you know, which was a, a sort of hagiography, I think, and um, and no one believed it. Yeah. So you know, it's a it is a bit of a conflict. But the tr- but but how can you not be moved? I mean, to go to Haiti and not be moved by the suffering you see there, you know, you'd have to be a stone and not to be exhilarated. I mean, was uh, when you see Zami La Santé in this blasted landscape and you and you realize that, you know, what they have accomplished, you know. Um, cleaning up the water supplies, reducing infant mortality so much, reducing the transmission of AIDS from mothers to babies to half the current rate in the United States, that sort of stuff I mean that is moving <laughs> by God you know and and I, so so be it i i, I don 't think that uh, reporter i don 't even know if i 'm a journalist i i don 't uh, I, I just think that you know when you go to report on something you 've got to come back with the with the truth and I feel that i f- hope this book is artful I know that it 's truthful, and I know that it 's accurate. We should mention that Zanmi la Santé is the uh, Haitian
0: Creole term for partners in health, a yes. farmer's organization. Um, y- you mentioned earlier that you do show up in the narrative from time to time, very strategically mm-hmm. in uh, as a well, character. I'm you think it's strategic. Well, it's, it, you know, <laughs> you go long chapters where you're sort of an omniscient narrator, and then all of a sudden Tracy Kidder's there, and he's actually, in some cases, tangling a little bit with mm-hmm. with Paul Farmer. In the end, I, I came away thinking that the book was not only about paul farmer and um, uh, and about uh, partners in health, but it was also about his
2: impact on you i think that 's true i way, way I was thinking of it, it was the phrase I thought of was the problem of goodness the, the problem of goodness i mean how do how do those of those of us who are far less virtuous handle someone like this? Are we going to try to kill him off? you know are we going to try to dismiss him, find some convenient recipe to dismiss him or can we find some way to accommodate him in, into, our, into the way we, we see the world into our lives um, and I, uh, th- that last possibility is the one that i that I like
0: best. did you find any detractors out there at all that had something negative to say about the
2: work? I never found anyone who uh, was a personal enemy, but sure, I mean there were people who were um, who really believe in this cost effectiveness analysis and who, who don 't approve of. Farmers' work. I must say the criticism is mild by, you know, sort of ordinary standards. But I I suppose it was, it was strong and heartfelt. Um, But I don't know of anyone who loathes him, you know, personally. I once said to him, I didn't think he had any enemies, and he said, "Well, except for all those people who were threatening to kill me in Haiti," and that's true. But it th- wasn't personal. I
0: think these were, for instance, marauding soldiers during the years of the military junta who threatened his uh, medical compound and who he stood up to. Yeah, yeah.
2: The, I mean, the whole—he was actually banished from the country twice. The first time, after the first one, he. This is after the junta. Took power, uh, de, de, uh, uh, sorry, deposed jean bertrand Aristide, took power, and then they were ruling the country with terror for about three years. He was uh, made persona non grata after the initial coup. Sneaked back into the country, uh, as he says, after the payment of an of an insultingly small bribe, and uh, worked for most of the time of that terror, of the of the junta. Um, but then was finally banished again. I uh, did. He wrote a did some. He, he, I think he read an editorial on my in the in one of the Miami uh, st- radio stations. It's in my book. I'm sorry, I'm forgetting these things. But he did something public enough that the uh, junta then took great offense and he was banished once and for all. Fortunately, he wasn't in the country when they banished him the second time. But there were there were threats made. Um, I'm not sure any really overt attempts on his life. But he, but sure he has. He has enemies, yeah, uh, but but not not personal ones. I don't think it's, it would be hard to imagine a, a really a personal enemy. for Right.
0: Him. I was thinking more of critics of his uh, of you know, approach to healthcare. Of course, there right. are.
2: I, yeah. I, I I can't say that I made an right. exhaustive search for them. Right. That really wasn't what I was up to. But sure, I ran yeah. into a few. You mentioned that many U.S.
0: politicians have started trooping down to visit the uh, medical center that Farmer has established in Haiti. You don't name any names, but um, are they taking anything away that's finding its way into U.S. policy? I hope so.
2: Um, That's certainly the case. Some some very important people in international health, and you know, Howard Hyatt and Jeffrey Sachs and uh, one of the uh, the world's foremost AIDS researchers uh, from Boston, have all gone down there and all had this reaction. Like Howard Hyatt's, I've never seen anything like this. They're just blown away. I uh, talked to one Republican congressman, um, uh, Congressman Colby from Arizona. He was just Astonished and delighted, and I think that, uh, and, and uh, uh, another friend of mine who used to be high up in the government, who I guess I can't name, uh, who went down there and, and has now sort of on what he calls a jihad to try to at least let let the um, whatever aids flowing into Haiti go to the Haitian Ministry of Health. Um, so it's had an effect I, I think it has had an effect and I've seen some of the emails from congressmen both Republican and Democrat and I think they' you know I think some of it is you know hey this is our american our Americans doing good down here. I think it's worth remembering and I don't want uh, that, to that, that that farmers organization does not get financed or has not until fairly recently been financed by with with official American dough um but they are being financed in part now. There's this vast expansion they're making through the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. Now, what's going to happen with all of that? I don't know. That's sort of off the edge of my book and another story.
0: I'm wondering if the U.S. healthcare system itself couldn't benefit from some of what, uh, what uh, <clears throat> Farmer has to teach. I mean, they're in the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere in this desolate area you describe he's providing health care that actually uh, is better in some ways than what poor people in the United States receive and more
2: economical to boot. Uh, actually, this is interesting. I, you know, I say that, I, I think he, he, uh, been, the way I think of it is it's actually a line from Jim Kim that Zami LaSante is something like a laboratory for the world. The techniques they have for treating AIDS uh, that they've developed, which are, you know, aren't revolutionary, they're very simple, and, and may well have been approximated in other countries before this, but they have brought those back to a program that they have for treating AIDS patients who are not getting treated successfully in Boston. Uh, and they're, they're using the techniques they used in Haiti in Boston to good effect. And, I mean, that's a wonderful technology transfer, right, from Haiti to Boston. I think that uh, community, what what he calls community-based medicine could be tremendously effective in a lot of American inner cities, for instance. And this isn't second-rate care. Uh, I think the thing to insist on here is that, you know, People will talk about standard of care. That you know, we have to reach a standard of care. Well, that doesn't necess- in farmer's view, that doesn't necessarily mean we have to we have to hospitalize everyone. That we have to use CAT scans on everyone, even you know, when it isn't appropriate. What, what he what he judges standard of care to be is the outcome. Does the patient get better? If the patient gets better, then let's look at you know how you do it. And and his, I must say, partners in health patients do tend to get better. Not all of them, but they do tend to get better. And I think, so I think, yeah, there are lessons we can learn. I I think also the idea that, you know, that he just refuses to to sell medicine um, because he thinks it's a human right. And and that's really, he has a little bit of a gripe with the human rights community when they focus solely on political rights. I think he feels that health is a human right. I know he feels that it's a human right, and, and I'm not sure that I don't agree. And I, I mean, certainly a country as rich as this one, I think the figure I read this morning was forty three million uninsured, and even those insured many of them don 't feel they 're getting very good medical care. This is a very bad situation it 's unconscionable. We spend more i think per capita than any other country in the world on health, and uh, we're not getting we 're not getting what we 're paying for. Um, I can imagine someone on the
0: conservative side of the ideological spectrum saying. This is great, what Farmer's are doing. It's a perfect example of volunteerism, mm-hmm. uh, That the things that could be accomplished if people take matters into their own hands with private funds and government doesn't get involved. What do you think he'd say to that?
2: Well, I'm not sure I can repeat what his answer would be. The fact of the matter is, look, we, these, are, these are enormous problems, and they're going to take enormous resources to fix if we don't fix them. And, and, and those resources can only come from these collectivities that we call governments. I think a farmer has very little interest, frankly, in national boundaries. No more interest than than bacteria and viruses do, really. But it's clear. You know, I think one of the things that uh, some people are fond of talking about is how poor countries need to muster the political will to solve their own problems. And I'm sure that that's true to some degree. But it's equally true, or even truer, that the rich countries have to muster the political will to try to help those poor countries solve their problems. Because otherwise, I mean, Haiti is a perfect example. Haitian, Haiti is in a situation now where it simply can't do, can't get itself out of this uh, terrible hole all by itself. I, I, I think that's just nonsense. On the other hand, you know, it is true that at the moment people like Bill Gates are doing a far better job than most governments are in financing and, and thinking through these problems. Farmer has accomplished so much, and he's had so
0: much success, and yet he describes himself in your book as, quote, fighting the long
2: defeat. Mm-hmm. What does he mean by that? What he means, I think, is that um, it, the, the, the first principle for him, personally, is to do the right thing. And the right thing to him is to doctor and is to make house calls, and is to, is to bring back a boy, even if at awful expense, to Boston to try to save his life. And, he, and what, he sort of, what he says there, I'm just sort of paraphrasing, this is the, this really powerful monologue in a sense that he, that he offered me, uh, is it doesn't matter, it does matter, of course, what the outcome is, but he, if, even if he goes on losing, he doesn't want to quit. That that you have to put yourself on the side of the losers, but because that's what they are on. They're on the side of the losers, and he's not going to quit because they keep on losing. And then he quickly adds, "But it's not that we're against winning. And sometimes I think we may win. You know, we're not masochists, but but we cannot be. We cannot, in order to win, turn our backs on the losers. It's a kind of a shifting around, and so he's willing to. He's willing to go on even uh, even if he's defeated. I think that's what he was trying to say
0: what 's your hope for this book?
2: Uh, I do hope that people who read it would be uh, inclined to i mean first of all to be aware much more aware than I was when I first started out uh, just how big these problems are that we 're facing right now in the world that the poor countries are facing through a and and, 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 and how and, and would have those revealed as they were to me quite vividly through this lens of medicine, which is a very powerful magnifying glass it seems to me uh, and also You know, I don't think the moral of the story is that only Paul Farmer can do this stuff and that we should feel demeaned by his example because we can't do as much. I do have some friends who I think find themselves irritated over that. I mean, that was one thing I never did feel because I never imagined that I could do or would want to try to do what Paul Farmer does. But the moral of the story, it seems to me, is that individuals can make a difference. and you know, and collectively they can they can start to make a pretty big difference and I think even I think farmer himself, although he 's very demanding on the people who work for him, uh, demands a lot from them. I think he would say to the to, to people at large you know that he 'd be happy if they just didn 't pretend these problems weren 't there, and if they would do whatever they could to to try to um,
0: ameliorate them right well, Tracy Kidder, I want to thank you so much for being with us today
2: thank you it 's a pleasure.
0: Tracy Kidder, from 2003, discussing his book Mountains Beyond Mountains. It's about Dr. Paul Farmer, his organization Partners in Health, and their work in Haiti. And in the years since that interview, Partners in Health has grown substantially, as have its facilities in Haiti and its reputation worldwide. Among other accomplishments, they've trained thousands of Haitian healthcare workers who are busy today helping earthquake victims. Paul Farmer, in addition to helping run the organization, practicing medicine on the ground, and teaching at Harvard Medical School, is now Deputy UN Special Envoy for Haiti. To learn more about Partners in Health, go to pih.org. That's pih.org. And uh, now, since we have a few minutes left on today's show, I dug up an excerpt from another long-ago interview on the subject of Haiti. This one's from 2004. I was talking to the Haitian-American novelist Edwige Dontica about her book The Dewbreaker, and I asked her this final question. You clearly love Haiti. I feel that in your in your writing. Mm-hmm. And for a listening audience um, who may have only two images of Haiti they get from the media, that of crushing poverty and unending political violence, tell me what you love about Haiti.
1: I love the, the spirit of Haiti. I mean, the way that people make art out of carnation milk that just... The get-up-and-go of people. I love the mountains, you know, where my grandparents were born and, and the opportunities that I've had to go there. I like the way that sort of carnival stops everything. I like the scent of vetiver that you get when you enter one of the southern towns, Lekai, where they have a vetiver factory. Um, I the like Vetiver being a perfume? Actually being the, the root from which the perfume comes, uh-huh. um, which has the most extraordinary smell when it, a whole town smells like it um I just I love the sort of the mist of the mountains the the spirit of people um really, and the beautiful art that we make um I know there's a a young there's a young artist who I'm in touch with um who we bring stuff to when we go to haiti and, and there was a little gap in time and and that we hadn't gotten stuff to him. He was a sort of a childhood friend of my husband and and he had created in that time a whole beautiful way of painting with ink from pens and his goal for example in life is to just find whatever he has to make his art to find it in Haiti just to find it in the ground so he doesn't have to you know rely on, on outside things so that kind of that kind of spirit you know the pride that people have when this you know they say we're the first black republic and the revolution and all that I mean for me it's very it's all mixed in and sort of those things that i very much treasure about Haiti. And and maybe it's because Haiti's had such difficulties that you know, we often feel like we have to put our arms around it whatever way we can and protect it and 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 it it's you know, it's and people if you if you go to Haiti you'll feel that. You almost you feel almost immediately and people who are not Haitian have told me that, that there's something about it that just grabs onto your heart and and doesn't let go.
0: Well, Edwige d'antica. merci en pile.
1: Merci en pile pour même tout. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much. Thank you.
0: And merci en pile to all of you listeners. That means thank you very much in Haitian Creole. Be sure to check out PIH.org. And do listen in next week at noon on Sunday right here on KUSP for another chapter of the 7th Avenue Project. Until then, I'm Robert Polly. And don't go away because just ahead, it's the Latin Quarter with the inimitable Brett Taylor.
1: Dans le soleil, levé chaque jour, c'est raconter dans le paradis. Pour Jean Belfler dans mon blague, dans tout le monde qui vit là-dedans. Il y a une chance pour le décorer. Un pied coco et bon, mais Belfler poussé dans chaque saison qui empêche une partie qui est Haïti, chérie, on va voir tout le monde sortir de ma main, chérie. Pour bon Jean-Pierre Mango, aussi ciel cap chanter, chérie, la moi plaine a campou. Oh, oh.